Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's Good New York. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 56,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. NYC DSA is a socialist, feminist, and anti-racist organization that is fighting to build a world that is free from all forms of oppression. However, we also recognize that we live in a world dominated by a patriarchal capitalist system that imposes violence on women to devalue their labor and humanity. Such forces seep into all spaces in our society, and the socialist movement is not immune. We have to actively organize against these power structures. Today, Alexandra Walling and Jen James from NYC DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group join us to discuss these critical issues and how the Gender Dynamics Survey is attempting to help DSA better live up to its feminist, anti-racist ideals. But first, a live reading of the headlines. An estimated 250,000 New Yorkers, including many school children, took to the streets on Friday for the climate strike. New York City public schools excused absences for students who chose to demonstrate, but not for teachers. The fourth Sunnyside Yard public meeting organized by the city's Economic Development Corporation was disrupted by protesters organized by the Coalition to Stop Sunnyside Yards. Protesters and organizers from groups including Stop... REBNY, Bullies and Queens, uh, Neighborhoods United, fear the development will value developers' desires over those of the community, resulting displacement, much like Hudson Yards or Atlantic Yards. Um, On Tuesdays, hundreds of Uber and Lyft drivers conducted a slow vehicle procession towards Gracie Mansion, causing significant traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge and FDR Drive to protest new changes to the company's apps. Drivers are protesting a new Uber policy that kicks drivers off the apps in low-demand areas to avoid paying drivers as much as required by city law. Drivers argue this has prevented them from earning a living and are demanding action from the mayor and city council. New York's new rent laws ban landlords from collecting more than one month's security deposit from prospective tenants. However, some brokers and landlords are still demanding good faith deposits from renters before they sign the lease. Prospective renters risk losing this deposit if they do not sign the lease. A Gothamist WNYC investigation found that the prosecutors in all five boroughs consistently fail to document signs of police officer dishonesty. Uh, and that's it for our daily headlines. Our daily headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. And briefly, I just uh, want to make an announcement uh, on behalf, well, 
uh, NYC uh, DSA labor branch has declared solidarity with UAW, uh, the TWU here in New York, and solidarity with EMTs um, who are rallying so they can have pay parity with firefighters. So now let's get into today's episode. Um, we always, before diving into the topic, like to introduce our guests, have them tell uh, us a little about themselves uh, and how they got involved in the movement for socialism and why um, either you, Jen, or Alexandra joined DSA, whoever wants to go first. <laughs> Hi, so I'm Alexandra Walling, um, and the story that came to mind when I saw this uh, question was when I was a college student a few years back in California, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Dr. Cornell West a couple of weeks after I was arrested for the first time at the first protest I had ever gone to um, about after a police shooting in my community. And at this point, I was really unsure about how I was going to manage to live up to these ideals that I had about service and activism and fighting against injustice, because I just felt so overwhelmed by the process of going through the courts. And he'd come to speak at our school, and I got in line and I asked him this question about, like, how do you live a life of service and activism without just being overwhelmed by the injustice in the world all the time? And I've never forgotten the answer he gave, which is, it's impossible to do it alone. You have to do it in a community, right? You have to be part of a community of people who are fighting all the time for a better world, but who also love one another and celebrate the good things in life together and make joy and beauty together. And so a few years later, after I'd moved to New York and after Trump had been elected, you know, I'd gone from being a fairly confused liberal with radical politics in one sense and very non-radical politics into another, into a socialism curious liberal. And it seemed like all of my friends and family were joining DSA. My brother was a DSA member. So I went to my very first DSA meeting, which was a New York City Socialfem meeting for the Socialist Feminist Working Group. And I basically never left. <laughs> um, that's such a good answer. Um, yeah, community, I think, is uh, it's the reason I've stayed in this organization for as long as I have. Um, so hi, uh, my name is Jen James, my pronouns are she, her. I'm also with the Socialist Feminist Working Group. Um, I am like a very stereotypical DSA member. I'm a like downwardly mobile white millennial who got activated by Bernie. Um, you know, I mean, growing up, uh, I, my mom was a single mom. Uh, you know, that was hard. <laughs> um, uh, my family, you know, I mean, me and my mom, when we were, uh, when I was little, were homeless for a bit. We were housing insecure for a while. Um, and class consciousness has uh, always, um, you know, been a patina on my life. But it wasn't really until like 2015, 2016 when things had like finally stabilized for me and I had gotten like a real job that wasn't gonna end in six months and wasn't working 60 hours a week that it was finally like, all right, like I have to do something about this. Um, and so uh, DSA was sort of like the first organization that I had fallen into that seemed not just like these, you know, show up to a protest sort of organizations, right? That was actually interested in teaching its members what organizing was. 
um, and like building real power instead of just like shuttling people from event to event. Um, so yeah, I joined shortly after um, Trump's inauguration and I've been going strong ever since. Yeah, I feel like um, what both you guys are explaining here and something we've heard from like so many people have come on the show uh, and something I've experienced myself was like, I, I had these like, I had this sense of like injustice in society. I knew things were bad. I would like, I would got more into like reading the news and I was really into history. And I was like, war, it's bad. We should stop it. Um, but there was, I didn't have a space where I could like, how do we do something about it? It was like almost so expressive. I was like, oh, I'm going to sign a petition. I'm going to tell my friends how they should think about things and try and convince them or like people in my family. But what, this like makes a difference with DSA is like it's about organizing collectively to build power and it has that sort of analysis so like why is it so critical like when you have this collective activity and this collective action and organizing why is it so critical for feminist theory and practice to be at core of this kind of socialist movement mm -hmm. um well uh, feminism, or at least like the good feminism that you should be studying, um, is uh, fundamentally the understanding that all oppressions are interlocking and that we will not be liberated until all systems of patriarchy, racism, classism, and heteronormativity are destroyed. Um, so it's, it's really fundamental to any sort of liberatory politics. But the thing that I would add to that, too, is that, you know, if you think about who the working class is, right, it's not um, Archie Bunker or, a, you know, <laughs> guy in a hard hat, white guy in a hard hat necessarily. Like, you know, the working class is disproportionately made up of women and it's disproportionately queer and trans and non-binary people. Um, so if you're trying to build a mass movement of working people, right, you have to be thinking about all the forms of oppression that people face. Um, not just, uh, you know, these sort of like bread and butter, you know, I want a 50 cent wage increase kind of stuff. And that's important, right? That's important to all working people and that's important to women. But, um, you know, sexual harassment is also an issue that the working class needs to face. And in, in like what you're... I feel like highlighting here, it's, it's, this isn't something new, too. It's like the working class has always been made up, like, primarily of women. And it's not like, oh, it, was, it used to be these industrial hard hat guys, and there were no women doing work anywhere, which is just ridiculous. It's even first true. factory work <laughs> was in the United States was primarily women workers. And they were, I mean, beyond that, doing all this work in the home that, made life possible so to have a sort of socialist analysis without considering half the population who are often uh, if not always doing more of the work that is demeaned in our society seems to be erasing any potential of actual liberation yeah i mean one of the things that um socialist feminists feminism and in theory is brought to us in the last 50 years right is this idea of social reproduction theory and this is this attempt to understand right how does the unwaged work that mostly women do allow capitalism to continue to exist the work that allows families to reproduce themselves workers to reproduce themselves from generation to generation well you know if you're cooking and you're cleaning and you're literally gestating babies and things like that that's that's labor it's just usually that labor isn't waged. Um, but you have to understand this if you want to understand how to destroy capitalism, which is our project, right? Absolutely. And what's been 
so exciting is we've seen, I mean, you've had the strikes here in the United States where you have like waged social reproductive labor in a certain sense in teaching and nurses. There was like uh, this past uh, Friday, there was like almost 10,000 nurses on strike across the country, but also in uh, places like Spain and I believe in like Chile, you've had people go on strike from doing domestic housework. And that's just like a really encouraging sign that like what you're talking about, this theory is really coming into practice. Yeah. Um, would love to, to see some of that sort of class consciousness uh, in America, but hopefully we can build up to that. That's uh, part of what we're doing here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so is there like a particular historical moment that highlights like both how crucial women organizers have been in building worker power and then the manner in which patriarchal domination has undermined collective solidarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of examples like, you know, this is not a new issue by any means. Um, sexism on the left has been around for as long as the left has been around, um, you know, and we live in a deeply racist and sexist society. Like it's inevitable that these um, dynamics will, you know, in fact, are organizing. Um, I am reading the Ella Baker biography right now, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, and I just want to talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the examples in that book um, that sort of speak to this issue. First of all, if you haven't read it yet, it is a must-read for every organizer um, in DSA, outside of DSA. Um, Ella Baker was an amazing woman. She was crucial to the... Um, civil rights movement um and also it's just like it's just like a master class in how to build a movement um so i highly recommend it um a little bit about ella baker specifically um she's like not one of those names that you hear very often and more of like the mainstream um narrative of the civil rights movement but she played a key role in uh some of the largest organizations uh, the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and she was uh, just a, a powerhouse of uh, organizing capacity, just a relentless organizer um, who did so much of the background work to make that movement successful. Um, but she was also a woman organizing in the 1950s. Um, and was it that dynamic um, really affected her organizing, especially in the civil rights movement, which was known for its very powerful male leaders. Um, so I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about her experience in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, this was an organization that was formed shortly after the Mo Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, and it was convened, as the name might imply, as the political arm of the Black Southern Baptist Southern Baptist Church. Um, and like as such, uh, the organization was infused with a lot of the sexist politics of the church. Um, you know, like just for an example, you know, women organizers above and beyond Rosa Parks, right? Were instrumental to the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, you know, whether that was the people organizing. Um, you know, mutual aid systems to get people where they needed to go, uh, the domestic workers who, you know, would walk long miles uh, to get to their job instead of using the bus, right? That move, uh, that campaign was built on the backs of women, uh, and none of them were initially invited into leadership of the SCLC, right? Um, 
And in fact, uh, Baker was chosen at like the very last minute to be the interim director uh, of the organization. She uh, was not the first choice. Uh, in fact, she only got that position because um, the other main contender was a gay man who was not, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, was not appropriate for the conservative uh, Christian uh, reverends who were leading the movement. Um, and she was never going to be the permanent director, right? She was only the interim director. In fact, she was charged with finding her replacement uh, and then wound up replacing that person after he was fired uh, within the year of his hiring because he could not adequately do the job, right? Um, uh, I mean, she... We could spend this whole hour talking about Ella Baker, but like, uh, absolutely, I just they 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 did her dirty in a lot of ways, right? Um, she and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had a very tense relationship, partly because of their like political differences, but in how you build a movement, um, but also. Um, MLK did not necessarily respect her or see her as an equal because she was a woman, and yet she was forced to act as his publicist and accountant for his book sales. Um, and just like over and over again, uh, she gave herself to the civil rights movement because she believed in its larger goals, um, all the while knowing that she would always be sidelined because she did not defer to the egos of male leadership. Um, and I think it's just such a, a good case study of the amount of work that um, women in particular put into um, organizing, right? Like she would she would travel extensively, um, you know, particularly in her NAACP days um, to visit chapters, set up membership drives. And yet because she was an outspoken woman, um, you know, she did not defer to the uh, you know, she did not keep her place. She gave her opinion. Um, she was really sidelined um, and not invited into the higher echelons of leadership uh, because of that. Um, and now I don't want to say any of this, you know, I'm not trying to uh, detract from the civil rights movement, which was one of the most successful mass movements of the last century. Um, you know, the it, these criticisms of are not meant to take away from any of the gains that it made, but we should always be thinking about um, what more could have been accomplished if we did not let these divisions limit our organizing, right? Like if Ella Baker had really been allowed to shine, had been given the predominance she deserved, like where would we be today? Um, and so these I think are the questions we're really thinking about um, as we're trying to study the gender dynamics in our own chapter. Yeah, I think that's like a, an amazing lens to view, like through someone who is such a critical, like an important organizer and also amazing thinker like Ella Baker. I also like I've read Angela Davis's uh, biography and it's goes into that in a slightly different way. But the way that she explores how also like the sexism in these organizations enabled the FBI and the police bit more space to infiltrate and undermine the movement and really uh like you're saying obviously the gains of the civil rights movement are so critical and they're really transformative but they're unable to reach their full potential because these movements get undermined by these sexists and i mean even in something like the civil rights movement it's harder for there to be racist forces 
internally in some of these groups, but there were respectability politics, though. Yes. Yeah. So the the way that when you have these like forces of uh, oppression within left spaces, it ultimately provides the people who want to destroy those movements more space to operate and destroy them. Mm -hmm. So, um, Alexandra, why is transformative justice? uh, So what does it mean? And like, why is it so crucial to um, dealing with these sorts of problems? Yeah, so when we were developing the gender dynamics survey, um, at the same time, um, there was this growing interest within um, New York City Socialist Feminist Working Group to study transformative justice and to engage in prison abolitionist work. And right, these three threads all go together. So transformative justice is a way that we can understand and address harm in our communities. And it's based on the understanding that all people are capable of causing harm and that responses to harm should try not to create more harm, especially more violence in the process. Transformative justice really seeks to transform the conditions in the community in which violence occurred to create healing and so that similar kinds of harm won't happen again in the future, either between the people most directly affected or more generally. And it can be contrasted with retributive justice, which is really what we see in the criminal punishment system in the United States today. Right? Retributive justice responds to violence with violence, the violence of policing, the violence of imprisonment, even executions. Right? The United States has far more executions than I think most other countries in the world. Um, And retributive justice really seeks to punish people for causing harm, not because punishment works, right? Um, If punishment worked uh, to stop violence, given how much more the United States punishes people with imprisonment than, you know, basically any country of comparable size, you'd expect that we wouldn't have the kind of violence that we have um, in our communities, in our workplaces, in schools, and families. But we, you know, we're still a society that has enormous amounts of sexual violence, of intimate partner violence, right? Right, um, of, of street-based violence, right? So, like, when people ask, if you get rid of prisons and the police, what will we do with the rapists? What will we do with the abusers? Well, the answer I would give is one that I've heard the great activist and organizer Mariam Kaba give, which is, um, <laughs> currently, what are we doing about the rapists and the abusers? Because most people who commit crimes like sexual assault are not in jail. Most people who are beating their spouses or their children are not in jail, right? Um, So if you actually want to address that, we need to start getting really creative. Um, And so, you know, and we also need to understand, like, what police and prisons are for. Police and prisons aren't really about stopping violence, right? Like, you know, there are currently more cops in the New York City Police Department who are dedicated to arresting people for jumping turnstiles in the subway system than there are to investigating sex sex crimes, right? Let's be clear about where our priorities are in our community. So if, you know, transformative justice was developed within communities of color, within queer communities, specifically to address sexual violence and intimate partner violence, because these were communities that understood that going to the police was not an option, that the police would not keep them safe, that we all need to keep ourselves safe. 
And so transformative justice is a broad framework for understanding harm, but it concretely can be implemented through what are called community accountability processes. And these are flexible processes. They often involve having a formal facilitator and then support teams for both the survivor victim of harm and the person who's caused harm, the perpetuator of harm. And the goals of a community accountability process can be multiple depending on the people who are involved. Right? One key goal can be trying to create healing for the survivor because right now right what 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 resources for healing to survivors of violence actually have right what will a prosecutor do for you to help you heal um but also uh you trying to change the conditions in the community that allowed for harm to occur, right? Are there, there's a way that this community is organized, is who is in power, is how resources distributed contributing to the violence that we see in the world. Um, and then also to try to hold space for the person who's caused harm to take accountability. Um, again, to like paraphrase Mariam Kaba, you can't force anybody to take accountability. Like you can't force somebody to step up and say, I did this wrong thing and I want to repair the harm I did. I want to atone, right? That's not something that you can force somebody to do with community accountability through a transformative justice mindset. But you can hold space for people to do that once you take away, right, this terror that if you fess up to what you did, that you're going to be thrown away into a cage for 10 years or 20 years or what, however. And so currently, New York City Sochfem is studying community accountability practices through the Prison Abolition Action Group that formed this year out of our working group. We're reading through the Creative Interventions Toolkit for Community Accountability Facilitation. But there's going to be more opportunities for people to get involved in the future. We're going to be starting a transformative justice reading group to explore some of these ideas a little bit theoretically, a little bit practically. Um, and if you want to get alerts about when this reading group is going to uh, take place, I'm going to read around aloud the email address that you should uh, write to to get signed up, and that is nyc-dsa-socialist-feminist-wg at googlegroups.com. Sign up for that Google group and you can get all of our alerts about uh, transformative justice going forward. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think we wanted to talk about transformative justice in relation to the survey is that is what's really informing our approach um, to this topic, right? I think it's very scary to admit that DSA might um, have issues with sexism or racism, but what we're trying to say is that everybody has problems with sexism or racism, right? Um, Everybody uh, causes harm, right? And it's about how, um, how we create community accountability, right? How do we repair those harms? That is the important question, not, you know, whether or not people are sexist in the first place. I mean, that's important too, but like really how we, you know, we should be able to come to that honestly and openly because we live in a racist, sexist society. And we all know that, right? So it shouldn't be frightening for us to admit that uh, these dynamics infect ourselves, right? It's what's more important is how we fix these things, how we address these things. Yeah, it's, I mean, in a certain sense, it's like all the work that we're trying to do and developing um, like working class institutions as a broad understanding where something like prisons and the the state and the police uh, 
are bourgeois capitalist institutions that enforce discipline and violence on people so that they can be pushed either into the wage work system or thrown away as trash considered for the system. And that's, there's no, uh, like, it's not some sort of, uh, I'm losing the word for some reason, <laughs> but it's not a coincidence that the prison population escalates at the same time that you have this economic crisis in the 70s and you start to change the way that production is done both in the United States and globally and therefore you need increased violence on top of people. And I think like, it's hard for people at first to imagine, hey, what a, what's a world without like police or prisons, but uh, the way you laid it out, I, I think very elegantly, um, highlights the absurdity of this current system. Like especially when you consider the fact that police officers in our population are the one of, if not the most likely. Um, people to commit violence in the home they're most likely to be shocking <laughs> domestic <laughs> abusers so you want those people being the one to come deal with the violence the people who are most likely to commit violence in their home to go deal with other people who are violent it's it's a circular absurd thinking that only makes sense when you realize that it's a force for domination and control. Um, and I definitely want to keep exploring this uh, subject, but I just want to remind our listeners that this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. So we've already been diving in to what the Socialist Feminist Working Group uh, and some of the projects that um, you're all involved in as part of the group. Um, but can you just try and briefly summarize how the the group emerged in New York and I guess reiterate why it was so critical for there to be a space for uh, non-cis male comrades to organize and lead. So New York City Sochfem got started in early 2017, um, right after you, you get this Trump bump as people are joining uh, DSA all over the country after the election. Um, and by the second or third meeting, um, the organizers who were forming the working group decided to take on the New York Health Act as a major campaign uh, because folks understood that as feminists, health justice touches on many aspects of concern to us, like caregiving, reproductive justice, labor conditions for care workers who are disproportionately women, um, and other issues like that. Um, and the healthcare campaign was so successful that it is now its own working group, and we're on to our second generation of projects in the working group. Um, but I wanted to address the second point about is Sochfem a space for non-cis men? And what I want to say to that is that socialist feminism is a politics. It's not an identity. And this is something that is a little bit of a bugbear for me when people say, oh, Sochfem is where women go in DSA. Because, I mean, there is some truth to that, but also it's not just a space for uh, women. It's a space for people of 
all genders, and that includes people who are non-binary, that includes transgender men and women, and it also includes cis men, right? Because socialist feminism is the politics that fights to liberate all people from gender-based oppression. And it is a politics that understands how all oppression is interlocking, that people can be part of oppressive structures in one way, but facing oppression in others. And these are the key insights that we get from black feminists organizing um, after the civil rights movement, right, where Jem was talking about what Ella Baker was facing. People like the Combahee River Collective, um, like Kimberly Crenshaw, who gives us the idea of intersectionality, and by other theorists who've like developed these ideas going forward. So what socialist feminists really calls for is for socialists to stand in solidarity with one another on all issues of oppression that we face. And solidarity is not just like this shallow and performative allyship, right? I want to quote Lilla Watson here on this, who said, like, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together, right? Socialist feminism is not about girl bosses, and it's also not about, like, <laughs> white savior feminism where you're going to swoop in and you're going to rescue a community. It is very much about like we're working together in solidarity and that solidarity requires not just mutual aid, but it also requires really investigating the ways in which you yourself right, might be participating in oppressive structures and forces that need to be dismantled. Um, mm. So when we in New York City Sochfem are seeking to embody this principle of intersectionality and solidarity across multiple oppressions and the organizing work we do, right, this is why we're doing things like prison abolition work, why right? we understand prison abolition as a feminist issue, but we're also doing childcare organizing work, and we're also organizing for reproductive justice for people of all genders, right? All of this is feminist work. I, so yeah, it's not uh, just showing up with a, a t-shirt with a slogan. It's about collectively building power. That that is at the core of it. And uh, thank you for a very a great critique of the framing of my question. <laughs> I deserved it. So uh, I think it was a it was a good it was a good way to break it down. So I'm hopefully I'm happy that I kind of set you up in that way. <laughs> thank you, Jack. <laughs> So um, now moving specifically into the gender dynamics member survey, like what is that and like why did uh, Sochvem organizers view as it like such an important process for NYC DSA members to participate in? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a survey. Uh, the steering committee should have sent it out um, to your inbox a couple of weeks ago if um, you're a dues-paying member of DSA. So go ahead, check your inbox, search for the Gender Dynamics Survey, and it should pop right up. Um, and so we put this survey together because, um, you know, I think most of the core organizers in DSA acknowledge that DSA doesn't always live up to its feminist, anti-racist ideals. You know, a good example that I think is bandied about by everybody is the amount of administrative work women take on um, in proportion to, like, the exciting, like, speech-giving or high-level, like, strategy work that uh, tends to be more attractive to men, right? Um and so, like, these dynamics are there. We acknowledge them, but um, we've sort of just been 
assuming these things or like basing our experiences on like the rumor network or like what ourselves or our friends have experienced. And so with this survey, we're like really trying to study our material conditions in um, a rigorous way, right? Um, and because, you know, I think as socialism, as socialists, like we understand that we need to understand our material conditions before we can fix them. Um, and so, you know, as we were developing the survey, there was a lot of talk of like, well, do we have to do this? Can we just go straight to let we know there's a problem? Can we just go straight to fixing it? And it's like, no, because we don't understand the full scope of the problem, how, uh, you know, DSA is a very um, unique organization because it's so large, it's entirely member driven. Um, and so it's a, you know, our, our problems are unique as well. Um, and so we wanted to start off just by studying it, just by seeing the situation as it currently is. Um, sorry, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, you know, and I think it can be scary to, um talk openly about these sort of things um we you know when you when you talk about sexism in an organization i think you're afraid that you'll scare people away um from dsa and that's you know that's not our goal right we we need more women organizers we need more people of color um in our organization but you know We've also seen a lot of people leave DSA because of these issues. Um, and so we think it's important to be proactive in order to prevent further loss and to make DSA a safer space um, for everybody to organize in. Um, you know, in organizing, we always, always have to work to bridge divides, right? Whether it's in coalition building or dealing with our internal culture, um, you know, capitalism divides us. It alienates us from one each other. It pits people against each other. Um, and so by uh, not addressing these things, we're only, um, you know, serving capitalism. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're just out here. We're trying um, to be open and honest um, and really proactive uh, in order to make DSA stronger and to make our organizing more appealing and comfortable to all organizers. And I think there's often this fear, right, that if we talk openly and honestly about the problems we face, that this honesty will be used to attack us by our political enemies. And I understand this fear. But I think one of the ways that we as socialists can be different from um, other organizations, liberal organizations, um, political parties, uh, is by really facing these problems head on. Like this is a way that we can show leadership as socialists and, and prove right what it is about socialist feminism that is really concretely, materially different than what's on offer um, in other spaces. And part of that is that like we're really willing to interrogate right the ways in which we're not living up to our ideals, um, and then to fix things without identifying like one person um, as a scapegoat and like pinning all of our problems on them because it's a community issue right right 
this is not in any way about like figuring out who the bad people are and then canceling them right that's that's (laughs) not the goal here right because we understand that all of us are capable of causing harm right there are things that i can look at in the ways that i've interacted in people with dsa where it's like oh man you know i screwed up there and i didn't just screw up like interpersonally i screwed up in my positionality as a cisgender white woman where i've had to go to people and be like hey I did this thing to you and I'm really sorry that I did it and are there ways that I can repair the harm that I've caused right all of us at some point are going to screw up from positions of power and privilege that we have and if we're going to be a strong vibrant socialist movement that represents all people we have got to develop ways of dealing with that that don't treat people as disposable that don't throw away whole human Mm -hmm. beings Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I think we try to avoid these conversations a lot of the time because it's uncomfortable, right? I, you know, we're all socialists. We all like to think of ourselves as feminists, as, uh, you know, as anti-racist. And it can be very uncomfortable to realize that within ourselves, um, we have these oppressive dynamics. Um, but, like... It's okay to be uncomfortable. You know, organi- organizing is uncomfortable, right? If you're if you're comfortable, you're not organizing. Um, <laughs> like that's just it. I'm uncomfortable right now. I hate public speaking. Do you know what I, mean? <laughs> I hate facilitating meetings. It's fine. I've gotten over it, right? Like, uh, you know, organizing within DSA has made me a much more outgoing person. That's like comfortable around uh, people, right? And that. Organizing, you know, it's not just about winning. It's not just about, you know, getting rent reform or winning elections, right? It's about transformation. Uh, It's about transforming our society and transforming ourselves. Yeah, I think what both uh, you have been highlighting, like, I mean, throughout this entire episode is how, like, I feel like what you're, especially what you're talking about, Alexandra, with like the difference between like DSA and socialist organizing compared to like a liberal organization is that liberals like individualize and create and like almost like permanently create character traits for people like these people are this way they're always going to be this way and there's nothing you can do about it those are the bad people but what this vision of socialist feminism and transformative justice articulate is that we all have these problems rooted in us because this is what society pushes down on us every day. That's not an excuse to go out and do terrible things. It What it is is a, a vision and sort of mode of political education that we all have to unlearn these like um, ideologies and practices of domination and and like competition and looking down on other people and work to build these structures of transformative justice where we can all collectively improve and also like view each other with like build bonds of solidarity. And there's a couple other uh, questions on the survey that I really want to explore. But first, I just want to let our listeners know that we have about 15 minutes left in the show. Um, So at this time, we'd love for you to call in and talk to us. Please call us at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. If you have any questions about the gender dynamics survey, about transformative justice, socialist feminism, or just general questions about um, DSA, feel free to call in. Uh, And uh, give us your thoughts. But uh, 
Just uh, before we hear um, from our listeners, and feel free to call in at any time, just how, like, what sort of work uh, went into getting this gender dynamic survey adopted as an official position of the organization? Mm-hmm. It was a long process. Um, we wanted to put a lot of thought into it and do it right um, because we want this to be like a productive conversation. We don't want this to just be like relitigating past events. We want it to be um, something that everybody can walk away from having learned something uh, about themselves, about their organizing practices, how they treat other people, right? Um, and so this whole thing got started almost a year ago. I Back in November of last year, it was during uh, the Kavanaugh uh, hearing. That is literally a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the it's Kavanaugh September. protest. No, uh, oh, the it? first protest was like at the end of September. So okay. we're like, we're coming up on the anniversary of that great time in American history. Ugh. It's been a year. <laughs> <laughs> time is not real. Um, but so, it, I mean, it took us like a solid six months uh, just to put together like a draft of the survey. We sent it out to various working groups and branches to get their feedback. Um, and then it was another couple of months going back and forth, working with the steering committee. Um, we, the survey grew, the survey shrunk. It's now, I think we got it down to like a tight 13 questions, which was, uh, down from like 30, 20. Yeah. I think (laughs) at one point the survey was extremely capacious because we sent it around to a lot of different organizers in New York City DSA and mostly the, you know, people were really excited about it and were like suggesting questions to do with things like ageism and childcare and all of these other topics that weren't necessarily the thing that were present in the mind of the people who wrote the first draft. So, right, the survey got very, very broad. And then when we were tight it, working with the steering committee to get it short enough that we felt like we could get a lot of people to respond. And we need a lot of people to respond. Yes, we want as many people to respond as possible. So if you're like, well, I haven't had any problems, so maybe the survey isn't for me. That's great. We want to hear from you too, right? No news is actually good news when it comes to something like this. So give us some good news. Like everybody, please fill out the survey. Yeah, our goal is to get 500 respondents. we're at just over 200 right now, so we need 300 more of you guys or girls or non-binary comrades um, to uh, fill out the survey. Um, please, uh, your uh, feedback and experiences are, will be um, invaluable um, to the report that we're publishing together. And do you want me to talk a little bit about like what we're going to do with the results of the survey? Yeah, and no, uh, I just want to let all the listeners know that I responded to the report, even though I can't officially endorse the survey as a WBI host. (laughs) (laughs) But I did fill it out. Yeah. Well, you're also a DSA member. Um, So yeah, please, we really want like, I mean, 500 people is about like all of the like active and core members of New York City DSA. So we're really trying to get like everybody to fill it out. Um, and so what we're going to do with the results, uh, the survey is closing in like around mid-October. We might extend it a little bit if we don't quite hit that 500 uh, response number. Um, but once we do close the survey, um, 
We're going to analyze the results and put together a public report. Um, it was really important for us that this be released publicly, that it wasn't just something that was we had for our own knowledge or that um, it was sent around to like maybe the elected leadership of New York City DSA. Um, we really wanted this to be a public report because we want this to be an open conversation with all members of New York City DSA. You know, we're not just putting a report to put together a report. Um, we want to create a space uh, where members um, can really discuss their own experiences, the findings of the report, and how we can uh, use this information to make DSA better. Um, because at the end of the day, that is our goal, making DSA better. Um, and we hope this report will give members the necessary information um, to draft proposals, maybe for the next city convention, maybe for the city leadership committee, um, you know, that can address uh, more structural, you know, structurally um, ways we can reform uh, New York City DSA. Um, you know, maybe there's proposals at like the branch or working group levels, right? Um, but the whole point is to uh, gain a better understanding of our organizing conditions so that we can improve them. And I wanted to add to that um, because we do very much like want to be um, inspiring like these big open conversations that if you're thinking, well, if this is going to get talked about, maybe I don't want to fill out the survey because I'm a little worried that people might know um, things that I don't want broadly known. Um, there's a couple of ways in which we're anonymizing information in the survey. Uh, so the first is that we're not collecting names or we're, and we're not collecting emails, right? You know, we've got that first level of anonymization in the survey. And then the second level is that we've got a team of three people um, who are going to be going through the survey responses and they're going to be uh, looking for things in responses that make it really easy to identify people, maybe because of things like a combination of I was at this meeting and I happened to check these identity boxes and right they're going to be anonymizing those responses um, and then this before it goes to our analysis team so the people who are going to be reading the results to interpret them and then write the report that's going to go public are only going to be getting this anonymized survey information. And then finally, like the last big thing, um, is that you can check a box that says, don't use my um, survey answers in the report. So if you want people to be aware of something for their information while they're writing this report, but you don't want your information quoted in any way, you can always check that box that says, don't quote me. So there's a bunch of different ways, um, right, in which you can make sure um, that uh, your information is going to be only used in ways that you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And our larger purpose here, right, we're trying to identify patterns of behavior. We're not trying to like relitigate specific cases and say in like this one instance of this grievance, like these people handled this thing poorly. No, we're trying to see like what are the broad patterns of behaviors that are causing issues in New York City DSA. So if we were to pick like, cause, you know, I mean, the survey, if you look at it, it's primarily open ended. Right. So we may sort of quote or interpret um, some of the responses and use those in the public report. But we want to do so in a way that shows like we're, you know, broadly applicable behavior, right, that sort of epitomizes general problems within the organization. Um, 
And then the last thing I wanted to say um, is that if you're facing a situation right now in DSA um, where you feel like that you're being harassed or, you know, hopefully this isn't happening, but if you're facing violence in an organizing space, uh, our chapter has um, several wonderful harassment and grievance officers, HGOs, under uh, National DSA's Resolution 33, which is our structure for um, a grievance, a formal grievance process. Um, and so if you feel like you need something more than just a survey um, response to address harm that you might be facing now or that you faced in the past, you can talk to a harassment and grievance officer in DSA. Yeah, you can email them by emailing grievance at socialists.nyc. I believe that information should be on the website too, socialists plural, um, dot NYC. Um, I also want to say, like, if you're maybe not a DSA member and you're listening to this conversation thinking, oh, my God, DSA has such a sexism problem. They have to, uh, you know, have a whole thing about it. Um, I would say that, like, our purpose here is to be, again, we've said this word a lot, but, like, proactive, right? We've seen other uh, DSA chapters um, really have large problems of sexism, right? I mean, the ISO um, dissolved in the you know spring, right, because of just long-standing um, sexist um, grievances, right? And so we don't want to we don't want that to happen to New York City DSA. And so we're trying to be proactive. We're trying to better understand our dynamics and. Um, improve our culture so that these things don't happen. I would say that like sexism and harassment and racism are not at the format uh the forefront of my organizing experience within DSA. Um although especially not racism, I am a white woman. But uh, you know <laughs> just for cuz this is the radio and you can't see. But um <laughs> I've experienced uh, anti-Irish racism. <laughs> I am. It's 1850. <laughs> Um, so I would say these things, you know, please, you know, don't, um, don't hesitate to join DSA because we're studying sexism within our organization. Um, we're doing this to improve and show our serious, our, our commitment, right, to organizing against these issues. And I think if also, if you're someone who hasn't experienced any of these, like, harassment or feeling neglected in the organization or feeling your labor devalued, still participate in the survey, that it's important to get answers from everyone. And that if you're in a privileged position as a certain, uh, from a certain, uh, like socioeconomic, um, racial and gender background, don't be like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to participate. We want everybody to take the survey. And like, you know, we also have questions that are like, what's a really great space in DSA that you participate in? So if you love your branch or your working group, um, tell us about it. Mm -hmm. So we've got to wrap up. Is there any um, just anything you want to bring up in a couple seconds for people to get involved in? Yeah. OK, so right now, go to your inbox, search for the gender dynamic survey, take the survey. Um, take the survey. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, there's an action that we sponsored on October 5th. Um, it's the Not One More Action to Defend Abortion um, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. You can find that on Facebook if you want more time and information. Um, do you know when our next working group meeting is? No. Um, we do. If you want to get involved in our uh, abortion access uh, committee, you can come to our meeting on Tuesday, October 15th at 7 p.m. at Verso. Um, and take the gender dynamic survey. All right, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. I thought this was an amazing conversation. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in this week. This has been Revolutions Per Minute, and we'll be back at you next Tuesday at 5 p.m.